Think about this. Our brains change. Memory is an amazing. What you think is in our there brains is aren't really finished. They're not fully cooked yet. You go with your heart. You we don't have any idea why yeah, we're, we're doing so smart. most of the things that we're doing. But here's the deal. I mean, to have to think about every individual characteristic of every individual is more effortful than just putting people in categories and seeing them as part of the categories to which they belong. I'm Bob Duke. I'm Art Markman. I'm Jack Anderson in for Rebecca McEnroy, and this is Two Guys on Your Head. Today, labels. We have all kinds of ways of categorizing people, and we have labels for them. You know, I, I'm a male, I'm a longhorn, I'm a college professor. There are all kinds of ways to categorize human beings. And interestingly, when you're in a group with a lot of other people who are similar to you, the individual differences, if they're small, don't really present themselves very vividly. But if there's someone unusual in a group, that person tends to be more noticed just because of the way our perceptual system works. I think in school in particular, there have always been informal ways of labeling kids. That kid's a troublemaker, that kid's a loudmouth, that kid's a sweetheart. We do that informally, but with the best of intentions, I think, institutions, preschools, public schools, in an effort to help children who are having difficulty, is we've developed these ways of diagnosing things that are potentially problematic beyond just having a bad day. You could say, well, on the one hand, why are we talking about this being a label for a kid? Because a lot of these labels that we apply are medical labels. They're diagnoses that are there because they have another purpose, which is a purpose of treatment. Anyone who's diagnosed with a disorder, the reason for doing that is because you can then put a treatment plan in place to help that person to overcome the disorder. And in many cases, someone might have a particular disease or disorder, and that doesn't become the label for them entirely. So when you have a cold, or if you have allergies, for example, which you might have your whole life, you don't get categorized as that allergic person. You just have the sniffles a lot. But when anything has to do with someone's brain, because of the cultural belief that our brain is a significant defining characteristic of who we are, whereas our nose isn't, when we label someone with something that has to do with a disorder of the brain, it now becomes a belief that it is a more central part of who they are compared to having allergies. And so it's important to recognize that it's not that categorization per se is bad or even applying some category to a person is necessarily bad. But when that category has something to do ultimately with some aspect, particularly of the brain, it now becomes a label for the person overall. And that can have some negative consequences. In addition to things of the brain, though, I think things that are physically obvious that involve serious disabilities, whatever they are, for example, someone with cerebral palsy who's severely in involved, their mind may be sharp as a tack, but the obviousness of their physical challenges now brings a certain attention to that that might not be justified and I would say isn't justified. Although what's interesting there is that people who are unfamiliar with cerebral palsy actually will tend to make assumptions about the mental characteristics yes. of the people with the right. disorder that are unwarranted. Right. I mean, people who are attentive to this idea and people who are advocates for people with special needs and self-advocates as well say one of the things to sort of combat this is to use what people refer to as person-first language. So rather than calling somebody, that's a 504 kid, you say, this is a child who has a 504 plan. Rather than saying, is that's an autistic kid, that's John who has autism, that kind of thing. So the way we use language affects the way we think in many ways. And I think there is an effort, a conscious effort on a part of 
many educators and parents and advocates to say, we can't let the label, especially when that label is defining a disability, be the first thing that we think of when we think of that kid. And part of the reason for this is because we like to choose labels that we can use to refer to something over the long term. That is, we don't want to have to keep renegotiating what to call something. So we tend to pick things that will remain the same about that object or person over time. So we call something a table rather than the tall thing, because the table may or may not be tall in other contexts, but it will still be a table. When we choose a label for a person, the assumption that goes into that is that the thing that we're using as the label is something that's going to persist over time. And so we don't choose temporary labels for things because that would require this effort of then renegotiating. When that broken arm is gone, now what do we call it? Yeah. The people who will create these diagnostic labels are doing it with the best of intentions because that diagnosis enables resources to be brought to bear to help someone to get better. But depending on how we talk about it, we can actually make it easier or harder for someone to get better because that label influences both the way people are thinking about themselves as well as the way that they're being looked at by other people. Yeah. There's a double-edged sword to these categories, right? Because in many instances, a child has to officially have a label to have access to resources that will be helpful to him or her, right? But at the same time, once you have a label, if that's people's first thought about who you are, you're in a totally different place. One of the things the person-first language effort is trying to do is by keeping the label from being the first thing out of your mouth and hopefully the first thing out of your thoughts, that now we're reminding ourselves that this is an individual who has a vast array of characteristics that are individual for that person. And the label that they have applied to them because of a disability is just one of many characteristics. You know, one of the reasons that this issue is as close to me is my wife, Judith Jellison, who is probably the leading proponent of what we do to create inclusive environments in schools, has really focused on that idea of how do we create an environment where people with individual differences are able to participate successfully together, not in spite of those differences, but recognizing and not having a problem with those differences. I mean, I think often when we try to create inclusive experiences for anyone, this whole idea of having colorblind society and that really it's not a matter of not noticing individual differences. It's acknowledging individual differences and not having a problem with it. Next time, we'll talk about acquaintances in the wild with Dr. Art Markman and Dr. Bob Duke. You can listen back to this show or any of our archive shows at KUT.org and subscribe to the podcast and never miss an episode in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Our engineers are David Alvarez, Jake Perlman, and Michael Crawford. I'm Jack Anderson in for Rebecca McEnroy, and I co-produce Two Guys on Your Head at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. Texas.